Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This week I'm joined by Bishop Andrew Rumsey to talk about his new book, English Grounds, a pastoral journal published by SCM Press. The book is available to buy from the Church Times Bookshop for the special price of £15.99, and we publish extracts this week in the Church Times. Andrew is the Bishop of Ramsbury in Salisbury Diocese and the co-lead Bishop for Cathedral and Church Buildings. Andrew, welcome to the Church Times podcast. It's great to be with you, Ed. Good to see you again. English Grounds um, is a particular place, isn't it? And it's the inspirational starting point for your book. Could Could you tell us a bit about English Grounds and how it inspired this book? Yeah, I came across it um, when I was on jury service a few years ago. It's um, it's the little stub of road um, near Southwark Cathedral that leads down to the Crown Court, just by London Bridge Station and the Shard, you know. And um, I remember when I was when I was on service there, seeing the street name immediately uh, it was an arresting phrase because it's just the kind of idea that that sparked my imagination so I was beginning to think about the next book having finished parish and uh and it kind of it once you've got a name I've always thought that once you've got a a phrase or a name the piece or the book almost writes itself you know so yeah that's exactly it I want to write about the of Englandness of the of the church there are shelves of books about what it means to be church there are there are rather fewer I think about what it means to be of England as the church and that was the that was as you say the inspirational starting point so and also because that location was has been important for for me and my family over the years it was where uh, my father started parish ministry in in Southwark in the dockyards and bomb sites of Borough High Street and um, I was in Southwark Diocese for 20 years as a parish priest and then was ordained bishop in Southwark Cathedral three years ago so that that area of of the country is is meaningful for me so it was it, it pr- proved the starting point for this journey really um that the book follows and, and did the idea for the book come about or, or was it started around the time you were appointed or, or moved to to wiltshire to, to become bishop yeah around that time it was just ahead of it actually and i knew that it was probably a really silly idea to commit to writing another book just as i was exploring this new role and I knew how demanding that would be, or I had an idea how, how demanding it would be. And um, but but I wanted to continue writing, and I thought, well, if I'm not if I'm not committed and contracted, <laughs> I probably won't do it. So I, I deliberately uh, pursued the book and sent in a proposal so that I um, was committed and I had to do it. And um, writing, you have to kind of do that with, don't you? I know that as, a, as a journalist, de- deadlines concentrate the mind, definitely. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned your book, Parish, and Anglican Theology of Place, which I think many of our listeners will be um, familiar with. English Ground seems quite a different book. But, I mean, does it develop some of the themes in Parish, would you say? It, it definitely does, actually. There's a, there's a chapter in Parish called Another Country where I explore the link between the parish and the nation, and so, or certainly England. Um, and I, I explore this idea that, that, that really England is a sort of scaled up version of the parish um, and that your, our belonging nationally as a country te- has tended to be formed 
locally, that's probably true of all nations actually, that you don't, nobody can comprehend England, that what they do is comprehend the bit of England they know and, and perhaps love, hopefully love. And, and your idea of the nation is a sort of extrapolation, if you like, of, of what you know locally. And because the parish had been so significant in, in the at key stages of, of the formation of English identity, Reformation and so on, the Anglo-Saxon period, uh, formation of the welfare state, there's key points. I thought there was more to say around that, that theme that I explored in another country. And I also had, I, I'd started each chapter in parish with, with some little more lyrical, local, descriptive mm. passages. But that's the way I love to write. I found parish was quite hard to write a long, largely academic book, really, because I, I felt something of substance needed to be written. But really, I, I love to write short form pieces in a slightly more poetic style, hopefully. And um, and I was encouraged to, to take that further, that style of writing. So English Grounds is is a bit like, for those who've read Parish, it's a bit like um, all of the, the starting pieces of, of the chapters in, in Parish, m- making a book out of those. Yeah, I was, I was intrigued by a quote from the book where you write, we, we don't talk about England in the same way we don't talk about God maybe because the two have been so intimately associated I mean do you I mean people talk about how the English don't like to talk about religion I mean do you think that's the same when talking about their sense of nationhood or love for their country I do because I, I think that that both are quite close to a sense of soul which is for for all sorts of good reasons hard to articulate it's not, it's not just that we're perhaps awkward or embarrassed about it, but they're really a sense of belonging and, and of deep meaning is, is, is usually hard to articulate. And, and anybody involved in the local church knows that because when you talk to people about the child's christening or, or whatever, you know, these are things that go beyond words. The phrases don't actually reach what they're trying to do in that ceremony. And often I think that's true about our, our sense of, of, of local and national belonging. I think it's also hard because we're, we're implicated in all sorts of things that we know aren't, aren't very great about, about our national past. And so there's also a right sense of circumspection, should we say, about, about our national memory. We know that we know what we don't like about certain forms of patriotism or nationalism, certainly. Um, and and we're not sure if it's okay to love our country because it feels as if it's associated with extremism sometimes. Um, and so I'm because I've always felt the deep affection for where where I live uh, and I, including the country, um, I've wanted to to work out how, how can we do that in in a in a good way and how do we do that in a christian way and it seemed to me the more i explored it the more closely associated for good and ill the christian church had been with the formation of the idea of england in the first place right from the gregorian mission um with uh, uh, with augustine at the end of the sixth century and the and the kind of growth of of unity uh, and the telling of the nation's story, this was the thing that emerged in the book, was the, the sense of narrative, that what the church did was give England a sense of itself in, in narrative form. And I, and I suggest in the book that it, it may be a vain hope, but it is a hope that that contribution could be recovered in the present day, that actually what we have is a sense of past, present and future, among other things. And that's what the country, I think, urgently needs at the, at the present time. 
Mm. I, I find that really interesting um what, what you write in the book about about narrative there's another intriguing quote well it's a theme that comes off as eschatology which i didn't quite expect mm. and you say this may sound unhinged but it's our exit from nationalism um mm. could you explain a bit about what you what you mean by that yeah i, I can i think that countries are and all, all forms of society are looking for an ideal home and they're looking for idealized forms of society and belonging. And uh, I would say that that is a, is a spiritual yearning for uh, belonging in Christ. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a heavenly, a sense of our heavenly belonging. And we tend either to look backwards nostalgically for a home in the past. We're always kind of looking back to Eden or forward to the heavenly Jerusalem, I think, or we're, or we're hoping for some forth, form of utopian or idealized home in the future. And, and certainly that was the driving force behind key stages of, of development in, in, in English cities, for example, the idea of Jerusalem as a powerful engine of, of urban growth in the 19th century, for example. And I, it, where, it, where it perhaps is the antidote to nationalism, it's not an, an easy answer to nationalism, and, but, but it is, I think, the Bible's answer to the idolatry of place. So one reading of scripture is that, that the Old Testament is about the over-localization of faith. You know, the, the promised land, it was the place of promise, the context for the covenant relationship with God. But it was also a place which, which was where the people were prone to uh, idolize and needed to be called forth to a kingdom that wasn't of this world and that was coming, but they couldn't capture it. They couldn't own it. It was, it was, it was going to be a new kind of land, a new relationship with land, but it wasn't the kind of land that you could put a fence around and say, this is, or a wall around, this is, this is mine, because it was elusive. And so in Jesus's teaching of the the kingdom of heaven it's always just ahead of you it kind of draws near it's very it's got a poetic thing you can get a sense of it get a taste of it a foretaste of it but you can't have it <laughs> you can't possess it and, and now what we're prone to doing with with nationhood and goodness any, anybody knows who's involved in local politics politics we, we, we we're the human human community is is prone to to possessing place we, we, we love to possess place. And, and the New Testament is constantly sort of prizing our fingers off the things of this world and say that this yearning that you have to, to belong and possess ground is, is, is actually, a, um, it's, a, it's a version of a, of a better longing for a, for a heavenly home. Certainly Augustine would, would say that in the city of God. You know, we've got to realise our citizenship in heaven. And that, that's the critique. So even in our most nationalistic hymns, like um, I've Out of Thee, My Country, you've got, you've got a, a sense of eschatology correcting the love of country. So the first verse is hugely patriotic and quite difficult in some ways to sing. And the second verse is the corrective. It says, but there's another country <laughs> I heard of long ago, I heard of long ago, more dear to those that love her. And... And it's as if you, the present place is demoted. England has to be demoted, or wherever we live, has to be demoted in the light of heaven. Um, and that's what I'm exploring in the book. Do you think this could speak into some of the um, debates that are going on about, you know, to what extent we offer people sanctuary, we offer refugees a place, or, or yeah. 
immigrants and and that's and that sort of thing i think it relates uh, fairly directly to it because of course most of the major political and geopolitical events of our time currents of our time are to do with place and belonging the lo- either the loss of home and the search for another one or or the the, the, the desire to protect and define the home that we have. And um, certainly that's true. Uh, what, I'm hope, what I'm trying to do is, is to sketch out a, a form of, of national belonging, which is, which is porous, which is hospitable, which is open to dynamic change and refreshment by, by uh, new communities. And that's, that's really uh, because of my the ideas that we, I began to study in parish about the community of non-belongers, you know, this idea that the parish originally was the paroikos, those who are beyond the household. It was the community of local strangers. And, and if England is a, is a parish writ large, England ought, ought to be the same, a community for non-belongers. And it doesn't mean that there aren't definable boundaries. So liberalism tends to abhor boundaries and, and pretend that they're not there or, or, or kind of work for the the eradication of boundaries but you have to have any kind of community needs definition um but it it depends what kind of boundary is it a dotted dotted line or is it a high wall you know yeah. i was just thinking of secular liberal sort of human rights discourse might want to achieve similar ends but i mean have we lost something if we don't have the theological language to draw on and this this vision of the kingdom and and mm. our sense of a, a heavenly home that should make us less afraid of, of, of people from the outside. I absolutely do. And language uh, is, is the key point. It, there is a, what, what, one of the things that, that the Christian community offers is a, is a grammar of, uh, of eternity, if you like, that places the present existence in the light of eternity. And it feels to me as if national life and at times institutional church life feels too existential it feels too trapped in this in the in the language of uh, in secular language literally secular language of this age and and one of the the richest things that we possess and offer is a, another kind of language a language of of kingdom of <laughs> of of heaven of of you know these sorts of uh the, the, the glorious words that we um, that became part of of the common parlance of our, our uh, of our language, but have, have receded from it, and I think we are the poorer for it. And the and, and trouble is, if you don't if you don't have those words, you you one rather just inevitably ends up in a rather compressed present. Because we need visionary language, visionary language about the past and the future. With that in mind, I was, I was curious as to who, who you hope will read the book. I mean, one would think hmm. of, of people in the church, but might you also want people outside the church? I notice, I think you're speaking at various literary festivals and things that are not yeah. Christian as such. Is, is it a message you want to take to try and um, inform people of their heritage and the, the, the linguistic heritage of, of the church? Yeah, I think even I think probably more so than speaking to the church. The parish book was 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 really to to the church, and this book is is more to. Uh, uh, I've wanted to try and explain what the church means when it talks about these things because 
uh, we do use an imaginary kind of language. And indeed, God has to be imagined because we can't see him. So a lot of our language around that feels so odd to secular society is, is because of our imaginary you know, life. And I say that in the fullest sense of the word imaginary, not make-believe, but, but in the sense of a, a visionary language. And I wanted, because I do think that we have this to contribute, to try and uh, translate, if you like, the the uh, and to write to write about the the Christian community in a way that might make sense uh, to those who are unfamiliar with it and wonder what on earth, for example, these buildings represent. Um, or what these what these people are on about, <laughs> and also why why we have the privileges that we do. You know, the Church of England has to recognise its privilege in the present. You know, why are there bishops in the House of Lords? Why do we? Why is the the the, the Queen the, the the head of the Church and defender of the faith? Where, where does this come from? Because if you just look at it in the present, it just seems bizarre. But if you look at it in narrative terms, in terms of an inheritance it begins to to be a bit clearer, I think. You might still want to reform it, but, you know, you, at least you understand where it's come from. Um, talking about church buildings, I mean, the, the book, you, you visit lots of different church buildings, often um, on your own and, and sit in them empty and reflect and, and walk around. But it's interesting the question about heritage. You write the Church mm. of England being so entombed in our country's past has a unique custodial role to play in curating such a contested heritage. And, of course, that contested heritage has come to the fore in, mm. in recent months and years with issues about um, statues and monuments to people involved in things like mm. the um, sl slave trade. And you also write of a, a blazing grace in pr protest, enabling us to see what we've been blind to for so long. I mean, is, is that a conversation you welcome and how would you see the church best contributing to that conversation? Yeah, I really do welcome it actually, even though it's easy for it to become polarized. And I partly welcome it because the, the Church of England carries around with it so much past and history that we tend not to notice it's there or just to see it as rather a heavy obstruction to, to shifting things that need to be shifted, you know. Um, but to actually look around the walls of the church with, with a bit more um, depth, perhaps, and see who, who are these lives and what is the story that, that our built heritage is telling, that's got to be a good thing. And... It's all too easy for, for people like me to say, you can't touch this, you can't go there, where well, this, is, this is too sacred. Of course it's not. And actually history, <laughs> history is always being negotiated. So the past is, uh, historiography tells, tells us that, that you know, there's always an, an approach to history. It's not, um, it's, not one, it's, it's not only one way and every generation um, looks for what they need to find in their past, and um, uh, that that's that's genuinely to be encouraged, and and surely that it also, I think, should stop the debate being too reactionary on on any on the side of any particular interested party. Um, so yeah, I I do welcome that because uh, if we talk about the country or a church building or a parish being a place for all we have to we have to mean it we have to actually show show that that, that is the case 
there's one part where you write that you like many enjoy being alone in churches and you say if you were not ordained to lead you'd be one of those slipping into evensong along the back pew with a smile at the door but little chat i just wonder if, if writing this book and, and the, the process of, of visiting these churches often um alone was i mean is it to some extent a means of maybe not escape but some sort of um change from the demands of of episcopal ministry yeah because you you are a wife at one point i think you mentioned in the book she comments that love your photographs of, of, of church buildings and not people um <laughs> so just just quite interesting that and but you also about this um buildings having subtle semiotics always signifying something just out of sight so i wanted the sense of being alone more deeply was in a way of detecting those signals and those voices from the past in a way that crowded buildings I mean, it's, it's harder to do that that's a really perceptive question, Ed, and, and, and yes, absolutely, the short answer is yes. And, and I, in, in beginning this peculiar job, I, I need, just like every, at every stage of, of ministry, I've always looked to the, the, the place I serve to sustain me and, and look for how can where I am actually enable me to do this. And uh, so I've always done that, and in parishes and in, 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 and here too in Wiltshire, I had always, I'd, I've got you know my academic background was in history and geography before before theology. I've always loved places and church buildings and so on, but never 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 truly and deeply. Partly because I was just always always working in them, and a lot of my duties as, as a bishop are are for for particular. Uh, services or festivals or or you know one's encounter with church buildings is quite busy when you turn up and and I realized I needed to find a way of of loving both my people and my places so to speak that would would f feed me almost aside from or f enable me to, to to do what I had to do if that makes any sense at all and so driving around the county which I, I do all the time I would just be calling I would call into churches and thankfully many of them are open and it was in those it was at that point that it was almost a revelationary it's a sort of epiphanies I I would I had in the first year of being a bishop when we were allowed to you know before the pandemic of seeing these spaces began to do something different to me than the way I'd encountered churches before I started taking pictures of them some of the pictures are in the book and feeling the presence, you know, the soaked in prayer and all of that, that is the reason that people do drop into to churches. And I felt them doing me good. And I felt them speaking. And, and it was it was it was moving. It's really powerful. So uh, that's absolutely the case. And it's it's an, it's been sustaining because um, ministry, whatever form of ministry people are involved in in the church at the moment, it's it's testing, it can be depleting, it's extraordinarily challenging. Um, and these, uh, the, the buildings particularly, and the, and the landscape of the count, count, county more broadly, uh, has been a, a, a sustaining thing, definitely. Thank you. And you're kindly going to read something from the book and then um, play us a song. Yes, I'll, um, I'd be glad to, thank you. I'll, I'll read to you a piece called Society of Aliens. <laughs> Bewildered locals pluck out their earbuds, interrupted for a moment, 
In what appears to be a scene from Trumptonshire, the town crier is booming out the news. Between spirited shakes of his handbell, we learn that 900 circuits of Wimble Minster are about to begin, all 102 miles being paced out by one person to raise funds in commemoration of the church, church's ninth centenary. The Minster is a treasury of curios, including a dazzling 14th century astronomical clock whose pre-Copernican sun whirs around a turquoise earth. Outside, amid the oyeying, stand the mayor, the rector and myself, arrayed for the press. None of us, it must be emphasised, is dressed normally. Those not wearing a tricorn hat stay at a safe distance while we join the first couple of laps like pace cars before peeling off as our companion continues alone. His shoes, he reassures me, have memory foam insoles. These civic occasions when the distinctive voices of church and state still blend and blur are more than a glorified pantomime. We are performing and thereby reinforcing certain ideals of community in which outlandish ritual and approximations of period costume play their part, or rather display that we are playing our part as stewards of an ancient legacy that both preceded and we will, and will we trust, long outlive us. Such chains of memory are especially worth sustaining in this intense present, when even the recent cultural past feels out of reach. Jiggly and Camberwick Green, those animated market towns of my infancy, with their McCartney-esque cast of sergeant majors and firemen, are another country indeed. The two cities of God and humanity are, Augustine wrote, mingled together from the beginning to the end of our history. And there is a tension, yet also a harmony between them. The ends of earthly civic life are to the more proximate goods of commonwealth, health and repose which the heavenly citizen must order towards their eternal goal, peace in life everlasting, he writes. The heavenly city thus relates peace on earth to peace in the next world, which of course must be believed to be seen. This familiar, within Christian doctrine at least, schema, has the curious effect of subordinating the life we know and love to an imagined future, a world intangible. It is the kingdom of heaven that believers must seek first, before all other things. To onlookers, to onlookers, this priority of the invisible can be puzzling, to say the least, for it appears to cheapen the very things that are most real and desirable to us. But perhaps the strangeness of the Christian worldview is made more familiar when reckoning how imagined communities, past or present, are the very engine of human society, powering our purchases, shaping our desires, mobilising our migration. Every one of us seeks an ideal home. And the roomier our heavenly dwellings, the better for those without them below. In Augustine's paradigm, one of the load-bearing foundations of Western culture and famously framed by the disintegration of the Roman Empire, what remains obscure is the possibility of our present life touching upon the goods of heaven. Civic participation appears merely instrumental as a society of aliens. The faithful can only make use of what is earthly or temporal for it has no lasting significance. As others have observed, conspicuously low in this mix is the Holy Spirit, our crucial bridge to the new Jerusalem. For we believe in angelic traffic between Dorset and the eternal city, and orbiting the minster at Michaelmas is a wager on nothing less. Thank you.
So shall I finish with a song? Yes, please. That would be great. Uh, this is this is about Silbury Hill, and the song's called Silbury Hill. Um, England's Pyramid, of course, which is just up the road from here in Marlborough in Wiltshire. And uh, during uh, our allotted daily exercise during lockdown, I, I got to know it quite well. So this is one of the songs to accompany the launch of the book. Silvery Hill 